This is Jessica Taylor, and I am the advertising manager at Out There Podcast, and I'm actually in the middle of the Grand Canyon right now. So I'm right above the Colorado River, and I've opened up my Peak Visor app. Peak Visor is one of our sponsors for this season. Their app helps you figure out what you're looking at when you're out on adventures. Let's say you're in a national park and you see a mountain in the distance and you want to know what it is. Peak Visor will tell you. I can see down where Phantom Ranch is, where I'm going to be tomorrow. Then on the opposite side, I see Bright Angel Point. That's where we're ending in three days. Peak Visor also has intricate 3D maps, which are great for planning your trips. The maps are so detailed, you can see down to individual trees. If you'd like to have your own personal mountain guide, check out Peak Visor in the App Store. You just might love it. Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. This season, we're exploring the theme, Things I Thought I Knew. Each episode, we're sharing a story about an outdoor experience that changed someone's understanding. But before we get to that, I have a quick reminder. Tomorrow is the last day to become an Out There patron if you'd like to come to our virtual happy hour. The happy hour is to celebrate Out There's seventh birthday, and it's going to be on March 9th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern. It's open to all Out There patrons. If you've been a patron for a while, you should have already received an invitation in your email. But don't worry if you missed it, I will send out a reminder. If you're not yet a patron, sign up by tomorrow, March 4th, so you can get in on the fun. In case you're wondering, patrons are listeners who support Out There financially. They make monthly contributions to the podcast through a crowdfunding platform called Patreon. Whether you give $5 a month or $100 a month, it's that support that makes this podcast possible. To become a patron, go to patreon.com slash outtherepodcast, or just click the link in the show notes. Also, this season, we're bringing you a special treat at the end of each episode. It's called Out There Favorites. And each episode, one of our team members is sharing recommendations for books, podcasts, gear, and other things we think you'll love. Stick around after today's story to hear this week's installment of Out There Favorites. National parks are often referred to as America's best idea. And there's a lot to love about them but they also have a complicated history, a history that involves displacement of indigenous people, a history of broken promises, a history of genocide. And that history is not over. The way we preserve wild spaces today often comes at the expense of Native Americans and Alaska Natives. I'll admit, thinking about this always makes me uncomfortable. I love national parks. I love that they're pristine. 
I love that you can't build condos there and that cars can only drive in prescribed places and that there are rules that protect the plants and animals. But I'm not okay with how these parks came to be. So where does this leave us? Is there a way to right the wrongs of the past? Can we protect our wild spaces in a way that is also socially just? Is there a way to create a better future, one park at a time? This episode comes to us from an environmental journalist who struggled for a long time with the paternalism of environmental movements in the U.S. But she sees a way forward that offers a lot of hope. She takes us from a young national park in Germany to Denali in Alaska and explores how we can start taking steps to right the wrongs of our past. Sam Baker has this story. And just as a heads up, there is some adult language in this episode. I've been bothered for a long time with how white and privileged environmental movements in the U.S. have been historically. I especially think about this as a white, privileged person myself. This tension is perhaps best articulated in the history of America's national parks. The creation of parks were either concurrent with or occurred very soon after uh, the United States had proven victorious in a military conflict with Native peoples. That's environmental historian Mark David Spence. He's Métis, which is a group with Native and European ancestry, and he studied the national parks for over two decades. Conflicts end with a treaty, and the treaty basically forces movement of Native peoples, and I'm talking about the American West, to sort of bounded reservations. In other words, in order to protect the places that became parks, white people evicted those who lived there. Mark is the author of a book about the founding of our national parks called Dispossessing the Wilderness, Indian Removal and the Making of the National Parks. Published back in 1999, it was part of a historical reawakening about what had to happen to make U.S. national parks possible. I first encountered Mark's work years ago when I was studying environmental history in college. But I first got to meet him, well, virtually anyway, when I interviewed him last year for the environmental radio show I host. He talked about the history of U.S. national parks and the problems with white ideas of wilderness. He said wilderness is a mythical notion, an idea of untouched land. But in fact, Native peoples have been changing and shaping that land for centuries. One part of the interview really surprised me. He said the most important word in national parks is national. He gave the examples of a Dutch national park featuring a Van Gogh museum and how in China, inscriptions of famous Chinese poems were displayed throughout the park. These countries were showcasing their national heritage in the landscape. Their national identity was reflected in what they chose to protect and how they chose to share it. The things we try to erase can say just as much about us. In the U.S., we promote this idea that the wilderness is untouched. And we perpetuate this myth by erasing the history of the Native peoples who lived on this land long before white people arrived. 
It may be easy to think of national parks as being all about natural splendor. Wilderness, wildlife, that's if we think about it at all. A lot of us probably assume that the focus of a national park is the park. But Mark's words, this idea of national parks being symbols of the nation that establishes them, really stuck with me. I couldn't get it out of my mind. If national parks are America's best idea, and there are deep, painful injustices embedded in their creation, what does that say about America? I'm walking in Eiffel National Park. It's right on my doorstep on the western edge of Germany, where I live now. It's a small park, just 110 square kilometers. That's 100 times smaller than Yellowstone. I've come here because the people in charge of Eiffel are using the national park to help right historical wrongs. And because I'm curious if we can use some of their lessons in the U.S. As someone who's from the U.S., I must admit, nothing in Central Europe ever feels very wildernessy to me. You're never that far from a road or the comforts of modern life. Oftentimes, even the campsites feel a bit contrived. I had a somewhat ridiculous argument last year with my boyfriend when we were camping in the Netherlands about whether facilities where you could blow dry your hair are really roughing it. But Eiffel National Park is really quite lovely with its vast forests of beech trees and rolling hills looking over deep valleys. It's also pretty new, established in 2004, as park ranger Nico Johannes tells me. It's funny to have such a young national park when everything else in Europe feels so old. Nico says they're still giving themselves some time to fully grow into being a national park. Yeah, we have 30 years to become uh, you could say a real national park. We are a real national park, but then the developing uh, time is over and then nature is uh, on its own. We have a lot of work to do, so it's uh, interesting to see how the nature develops and uh, we can see it everywhere we go because it's in constant change. I've met Nico, along with historian Katharina Vonemann, here at the park's headquarters, called Vogelsang, which means birdsong. We have a beautiful view from high up, looking out over a dammed river and tall forested hills. We are looking at the core zone of the national park. Yeah, on the other side, we see parts of the formerly restricted military area. There was a military camp training side here. The facilities where we're standing on this windy, drizzly day were a former Nazi training center. These were the buildings where the people who came here in Nazi period learned something about the racist and anti-Semitic uh, ideology of the National Socialism. The Nazi leaders um, established this idea of these schooling centers or training centers shortly after Hitler's rise to power in 1933. And for young men, it was the vision of a great career that they were promised here. 
In these stone buildings meant to represent a powerful regime's control, future Nazi leaders and officials were educated from 1936 to 1939. During the war, the buildings were used as a hospital, and later, boys as young as 12 came here to be part of an elite Nazi school, literally called Adolf Hitler School. In 1944, the grounds were abandoned. They were then used by the U.S. Army, followed by the British Army, and then Belgian troops, all the way up until 2005. At that point, a difficult question was raised. What to do with this place? After discussions in favor and against maintaining Vogelsang, it was decided it'd be turned into a space where German and international tourists could reckon with the wrongs of the past. And so, work began to transform Vogelsang into part of the newly founded National Park, eventually housing its headquarters. It was reopened as part of an intentional effort to build a more tolerant world. Katerina points out how they've decided to restore the property in order to confront its Nazi past. Rather than restoring the site as it would have been during Nazi rule, architects added modern elements like bright green geometric window frames to bring this space out of the past and into the present. What I quite like with these green parts here in the buildings is that they uh, destroy the former view of this so-called Ordensburg Vogelsang. It doesn't look like a castle anymore, but it has these modern parts in it. Katerina shows me another spot where there's a dramatic statue of a muscly man on the move with a torch in his hand. To his right is an inscription. It's illegible now as both he and the words have been shot many times, likely by Allied forces doing a bit of field training after the war. Instead of restoring the statue and its Nazi message, missing pieces have been replaced with plain white stones. And trees once chopped down to display the statue have been allowed to grow back, obscuring it. When we're back at the visitor center, I ask Katerina, if even with these specific renovations and a historical museum exhibit, if they were worried about neo-Nazis coming back to the site. It was one of the fears, but we don't have to deal with many neo-Nazi groups or groups of the far right. It's quite calm, but there are some groups that come here that take photos. It's quite difficult to deal with, so we have to yeah, make clear that this is a place where we deal with this history in a reflected and also critical way. Rather than ignoring history, it was decided that it needed to be talked about, to be dealt with. And that's what they do now, educating visitors and school groups about how average people at that time became Nazis, got swept up in this hateful movement. We go into one of the barracks. It has words written in French on the walls, left over from Belgian forces. In the center of the room is a circle of chairs, used by school groups to engage in discussion. Our main topic here at this place is to talk about the young men who came here, what did their life look like, and how did they become perpetrators during World War II. And that's uh, questions that are not easy to answer, but we can discuss this. And also always the questions that tangle our present. What uh, kind of m mechanisms uh, do we see in this uh, racist and anti-Semitic ideology? And do they still work today, maybe? 
Back in the museum, Katerina shows me a black and white photograph of some of the men who walked these grounds less than a century ago. I think it's quite interesting to look at the, at the entrance of the exhibition because it starts with a big photograph, a historical photograph of the so-called Ordensjunker, the young man who came here during the 1930s. This photograph is quite irritating for visitors here because it's quite big and the persons, they look uh, calm, they look like they're having a break and only the uniforms and the swastikas tell us that these people are Nazis. So we look them in the eyes, as you can see. Looking these men in the eyes through the lens of history, I get a chill. Both because they were likely murderers, and also, maybe even more so, because they were ordinary people, just like us looking back at them. Katerina sees this as one of the most important parts of the site, the reflection visitors and students have. Asking ourselves, what would I have done at this time? Might I have acted the same, if I were educated in this way. Living in Germany has given me a greater appreciation for this type of reflection. By no means is this country perfect, or even free of Nazis for that matter. But it is trying to be better. And it's doing this work in one of its national parks, a space that symbolizes another German trait I've come to admire, their love of nature, and the time they set aside to get out and enjoy it. In this space that was once meant to be a beacon of Nazi ideology, the nation now grapples with its history. Amid complicated sites of severe buildings set against a beautiful landscape, they conserve the countryside and remember its history. This site also symbolizes one other thing. Various nonprofits use the buildings here, and one of them happens to help resettle refugees. It's even used barracks built by the Belgian army to house refugees when they first get to Germany, before getting resettled more permanently. And in this, I see something that I've heard Germans voice to me, something they feel they can finally be proud of, a new reputation as a more welcoming country. Hey, it's Willow. We'll hear the rest of the story in a moment. But first... I think it's common to think of humans as apart from nature, but we are a part of nature. And there is a way that we can interact where we do less harm, maybe do no harm, and actually can thrive together with the environment. That's Morgan Springer. She's the co-host of a new podcast series called Unnatural Selection. It's about how humans have both helped and hurt the environment. The series is kind of a toolkit for listeners so that we can evaluate how we operate in the environment in the natural world and, and figure out how we can really do better. Unnatural Selection is one of our sponsors for this episode. It's a new season of Points North. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts or at pointsnorthradio.org.
Support for Out There also comes from Powder 7. Powder 7 is a full-service ski shop and online retailer based in Golden, Colorado. They have a classic ski shop vibe with the convenience, fast shipping, and great prices of a leading online retailer. Powder 7 only sells ski gear, and they do it year-round. The folks who work there are avid skiers, and they really know their stuff. Powder 7 carries one of the ski industry's widest selections of gear, from carving skis like the head super shapes to all-mountain and freeride skis like the head cores. They offer new and used skis from more than 30 brands. Shop online at powder7.com or feel free to call or email them and chat with their team of experts. That's powder the number 7.com. And now, back to the story. Hearing how the Germans at Vogelsang were working to acknowledge their past while also charting a new future within a national park, I realized I knew a park like this in the U.S. In fact, I'd been to it when I lived in Alaska. Denali. Now, if you're not from the U.S., or maybe even if you're not from Alaska, you likely learned in grade school geography that the tallest mountain in North America the centerpiece of this national park, was called Mount McKinley. But that wasn't its original name. This mountain was known as Denali. It's a name that was stripped away when the park was founded in 1917. Nearly a century later, ahead of a presidential visit to Alaska by Barack Obama, Secretary of the Interior at the time, Sally Jewell, officially reinstated the name Denali on the federal level. The change was widely hailed by Alaskans as a positive, overdue announcement, falling in line with what the state had already done in 1980. It honored a native name for the mountain, instead of a president who'd never stepped foot in Alaska. Having learned about the troubling history of U.S. national parks, I thought to myself, yes, this is a step towards righting the wrongs of the past, an easy win. But is a name change enough? I'm Kiana Carlson. I was born and raised in Cantwell, Alaska. I work at Denali National Park and Preserve in the summers in the Cultural Resources Department, studying history and archaeology and working in the museum. And I'm Atna Athabaskan and grew up traditionally here in the middle of Alaska and continue to live pretty traditionally. Kiana grew up two miles away from Denali National Park. As a kid, she hiked and went on school field trips here. I expected that Kiana would have welcomed changing the mountain's name back to Denali, but she told me it doesn't really mean much for her family. There's a quote by my great-great-grandmother. She was mad at people telling her to call it Denali because that's the native name, and she was like, that's not my native name. That's not what we call it. Don't force me to call it something you think that's what we call it, even though that's not what we call it. There are five Alaska Native groups that use the land that now makes up Denali National Park and Preserve. Atna, Denina or Dina'ina, Tanana, Koyakon, and Upper Kuskokwim. And naturally, they all have words in their own languages for the mountain, though they all translate to Big Mountain or the Tall One. In Atna... Oh gosh, it's always so hard to say. I'm going to try my best. This is not super correct, and I know my elders would laugh at me. 
but <laughs> they'd be proud that I'm at least trying. Declake, which literally translates to big mountain. Now the biggest thing is, is it Denali or Denali? <laughs> Denali itself, it's a native word, but it's an anglicized version. As I was working on this piece, going through news stories of Denali's name change, I realized that I couldn't actually find a single Alaska native quoted in them. A blind spot on the part of, I assume, white journalists covering the story at the time. Kayana made me realize that I was probably living in an environmentalist bubble at the time, too, patting other liberals on the back for a largely symbolic gesture that didn't change much. It's not that the name change was bad. There have been plenty of Alaska Natives who pushed for it. But it didn't fix the issues that still linger with the park. Issues that stem from white concepts of wilderness, which often get in the way of Native people's connections to the land. Mark David Spence explains this tension well. He says a lot of white people see themselves as separate from nature, and their interactions with the natural world often involve conquering it. I asked Mark what the establishment of national parks says about the history of white environmentalists in the U.S. Uh, a lot. Um, so when I was almost too young to remember, when I was a kid, when television signed off late at night, it basically played the Star Spangled Banner and it was just a whole bunch, it was almost like a slideshow of national parks. This greatest idea and this mighty nation, which is represented in the beauty, the grandeur of these sites, but also the sense of recreational struggle against nature that they provide. These are sort of somehow or another presumed to be strictly American traits. But it also comes from the European concept of the sublime, which is when I get way up into the high country, I'm away from everything, and I'm just looking at pure divinity as, as originally emanated at the, at the process of creation. In that, though, also comes a tremendous amount of ego. I climbed that. I hiked 20 miles in a day. There's a real sense of righteousness about outdoor recreation, and particularly wilderness recreation. So sort of the white recreationalism, that, that's the thing that rubs me most raw because they equate their experiences, which you know are emotionally and physically transcendent, to indigenous people's connections to the land. They go, I get deep connections to these places. In reality, Mark says, these kind of white recreational experiences are very different from indigenous connections to the land. We're interested in a future that will last as many thousands of years forward as the past that has brought us to where we are now. You know, Native peoples aren't interested in saving parks for visitation. They're interested in saving their world, restoring what's been lost, and then perpetuating it into the future. For Native peoples, park boundaries aren't the important thing. It's, it's homeland stories, food resources, fasting sites, which is also referred to as a vision quest. All this might sound a little theoretical, but for Kayana and her family, the issues are very concrete. For example, when Denali National Park was created, 
White people decided that hunting didn't fit with their vision of wilderness, so hunting was banned inside the park. But Alaska natives had hunted there for generations. All we want is to hunt and kill a moose because we love moose meat. And it's beyond like us just being meat eaters. There's so many quotes from so many elders that like it's tied to our mental health. Like it makes us happy. My brother lives in California. We send him moose meat. And like I have a cousin that lives in Utah. She's vegetarian, but she comes up here, she eats moose meat, and she almost like cries because it's just, it's powerful eating food that we've eaten forever, which is true to all cultures. There's no difference for us and moose meat and caribou meat or sheep meat or blueberries or whatever it is. And we just want the rights to be able to access that. In 1980, the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, better known as ANILCA, came into law. Among other things, it added 4 million acres to Denali, tripling its size. On the new parkland, some hunting was allowed. But over the years, so many restrictions were put in place that today, very few, if any, Native hunters actually hunt on parkland. Personally, my personal opinion is that it did not do shit for protecting Alaska Native hunting and fishing rights. It basically just like didn't take any more away, but it didn't like explicitly protect either. Debates around hunting on the newly added lands in Denali got heated in the 90s, especially around using four-wheelers to pack out game meat. I think it would be a huge win to deregulate some of the four-wheeler regulations, even though I understand why they were trying to ban it because four-wheelers and ATVs side-by-sides, they can be very detrimental to the environment if we're not careful. What was the issue was the over-regulation and the idea of like them telling us, hey, that's not your tradition. You know, it's like, no, you, you can't tell us what our traditions are or not. And it's just like not having trust in the local people that like we know how to treat our land. It's definitely kind of a statewide problem, or honestly, kind of a countrywide problem of that idea of like, okay, natives should use their traditional ways. And it's like, but we've always been evolving too. Like, what are we supposed to go back to hunting with atlatls? We've moved on. Like, we aren't just stuck in 1930 or the 1830s or whatever year you want to stuck in. In talking with Kayana, it's clear that white environmentalists' quest for the mythical, untouched wilderness in our national parks is still impinging on indigenous lives. Things do seem to be changing, though, if slowly. After studying the national parks for over 20 years, Mark is at least cautiously optimistic. Secretary of the Interior is an indigenous woman, Dev Holland. Chuck Sams who is a member of the Umatilla Nation, which is in northeastern Oregon. He's the director of the National Park Service. So that, that is a big shift. He says it's also important for tourists to realize that Native people still use national parks, too. And like Kayana said earlier, how they use those lands is evolving. But it's also a matter of shifting how white Americans think about national parks. I think... The biggest thing, and this is kind of what I've been trying to state working at the park, whenever I talk with like the interpretation team or 
tourists or the public is just these parks are not untouched land. Sure, it's not touched by like skyscrapers or oil development, but uh, it's just like reminding them that one, people have been here forever and this land has been touched forever and those people are still here. They might not be living in the park anymore, but they're living right outside of the park and still are involved within the park. There's always been people here. Well, not always, but you know, for a really long time. (laughs) There have been incremental moves in recent years to right some of the wrongs of the U.S. national parks. Be it changing the name of a mountain, or giving some land use rights back to Alaska Natives and Native Americans. But there's still a lot of work to do to acknowledge white environmentalist roles in establishing national parks at the expense of Native peoples. I think Mark David Spence was right. The most important word in national park is national. Venturing to these two national parks in different countries with different histories, I thought I'd find two redemption stories for how to confront problematic histories. But now I know it's not as easy as just changing a name or the facade of a building. What I learned in looking at just these two parks and two countries that are still grappling and will probably always continue to deal with their flawed and painful pasts is that what we choose to preserve says a lot about what we value and who we strive to be. In the U.S., we have chosen to make certain pieces of land off-limits to the things Native people used to do there. And only the things white people want to do, hiking, rock climbing, conquering summits, are allowed. What this says about us is that we value white people's experiences on beautiful lands over indigenous people's connections to that land. White recreation and ideas of environmentalism take priority. If there's anything I've learned in Germany, it's that the work of addressing the darker moments of our pasts isn't done quickly. It's an ongoing process of reflection and thinking critically about the stories we tell ourselves, as well as actively, constantly doing better in our present. But maybe with a lot of effort and a willingness to listen, the U.S. can get there someday. In journalism, we often say we're writing the first draft of history. But the thing about history is, it has many drafts. And each generation will interpret and rewrite how they see what happened before, hopefully adding more nuance and including a more holistic set of voices as they do so. National parks, like the nations and the people who create them, are unfinished. They are symbols of our ideals and manifestations of what we value, what we want to protect, and what we want to project to the world. Most importantly, we have the power to change them and what they represent. As Nico told me in Eiffel National Park, nature there is in constant change. And I think our national stories are too. Hopefully, for the better. 
was Sam Baker. She's an American journalist living in Cologne, Germany, and she hosts an environmental podcast and radio show. It's called Living Planet, and it's a production of Deutsche Welle, Germany's international broadcaster. If you liked Sam's story, tune into Out There next week for a special bonus episode where we'll play you one of Living Planet's stories and have a behind the scenes interview with Sam. In the meantime, you can follow her on Twitter at SRM Baker. It's time now for Out There Favorites. This is the part of the show where we share some of our favorite resources, favorite apps, favorite books, favorite podcasts, gear. These are not ads. We're not getting any money from the things we recommend. It's just a chance for us to spread the love. Hi there. I'm Tiffany Duong, and I'm one of the ambassadors here on Out There. Today, I'm sharing with you three of my favorite products. The first is Gecko Brand's Roll Top Waterproof Backpack. This is so much more than your ordinary dry bag. First of all, it's made of something that feels more like fabric than plastic. I love that. If you're like me and you're always boating or diving or on the water, you don't want all of your stuff to get wet. Uh, This is my favorite way to make sure that my clothes or my lunch and sometimes even my laptop or journal stay dry. Second, I want to share with you Stream to Seas products. This line of skin and hair protection is really amazing because it's not only totally safe for our environment, the ocean in particular that I am in love with, but also for human bodies. Their sunscreen was their first big product and it is the only one that I will trust and use on the water. Their leave-in conditioner is a cult classic. If you leave salt water or even pool water feeling like your hair is kind of dry and and ratty and lacking of moisture, this product will save you, I promise. And it smells amazing. Last of all, I want to tell you about Silly Pints. These are silicone pint cups, but they also make wine glasses, shot glasses, you know, whiskey cups, you name it, bowls, dog bowls. They're in amazing tie-dye patterns and bright colors, and there's even glow in the dark. This product is my favorite thing to drink out of. I use it when I go camping, um, when I am on road trips, and honestly, like every day at home. I love them because you can bake in them, you can cook in them, you can, they're dishwasher safe, they're unbreakable because they're silicone, and they're just so happy to look at. Again, that was Tiffany Duong, one of Out There's ambassadors. I have links to all the things she recommended in the show notes at outtherepodcast.com. Coming soon on Out There, we'll have a story about a young woman who was addicted to her phone. I think a lot of us can relate to that these days. It got so bad that it was getting in the way of her career and her happiness. But then, one starry night in Texas, something happened that changed everything. When I first got out of the car, I couldn't see anything. It was pure darkness. I couldn't see my feet, nor my friends who were standing right next to me. I could only hear the hallowing wind and crickets chirping. Then I looked up. 
Tune in on March 17th to hear that story. Before you go, two quick announcements. First, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I'd love for you to come to our patrons-only happy hour on March 9th. If you're not yet a patron, you can become one by going to patreon.com slash outtherepodcast, or you can just click the link in the show notes. Everyone who's a patron as of tomorrow, March 4th, will be invited. Secondly, we are co-hosting a virtual open mic night with our friends at Kula Cloth. There will be poetry, storytelling, and more. It's going to be on March 31st at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Time. That's 8.30 p.m. Eastern. It's free to attend, and it's online, so you can join from wherever you are in the world. Just grab a beverage and a snack, curl up on your couch, and prepare to be entertained and enchanted. To save your seat, go to outtherepodcast.com slash open mic. And I have a link to that in the show notes as well. If you're a skier, chances are you want some info about a mountain before you go there. Maybe you want to know what the ski runs are like, or you want to know the status of the various lifts, or opening and closing times. If that kind of info sounds helpful to you, check out an app called PeakVisor. PeakVisor is one of our sponsors. Their app helps you plan out your adventures by giving you detailed 3D maps of mountains all over the world. You can see ski runs and lifts, plus real-time info for almost all ski resorts in the U.S. Check out PeakVisor in the App Store. You just might love it. If you're new to Out There, check out the Best of Out There playlist. This is a collection of some of our favorite episodes of all time, and it's a great introduction to the range of stories we do on the show. You can find Best of Out There on Spotify and at our website, outtherepodcast.com. Today's story was reported and written by Sam Baker, editing and sound design by me, Willow Belden, out There's advertising manager is Jessica Taylor. Our audience growth director is Sheba Joseph. Kara Schaefer is our print content coordinator. Our ambassadors are Tiffany Duong, Ashley White, and Stacia Bennett. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. Have a beautiful day, and we'll see you soon.